Hey everybody, it's James Lindsay, and you're listening to New Discourse's Bullets, in which I give a bullet point type summary of one concept from woke Marxism that you need to know and understand in order to defeat it. And today, we're talking about demoralization. This is a communist tactic, or really a totalitarian tactic. It would always apply in any totalitarian system, um, communism being certainly one of those, whereby uh, people are... Uh, demoralized. They they lose their their morale. Actually, um, in in fact, it's the the intentional destruction of morale. Um, it, it's also the destruction of morality. But more than that, it's the destruction of their capacity to to kind of rally and be able to resist. Um, it can be a long and slow process. Of course, it gained fame in the West thanks to a now very viral video with a, an alleged Soviet defector, Yuri Bezmenov. In 1984, he sat down with Ed Griffin and talked about it. I'm not going to go through that. You should look up the video if you haven't. But he summarizes and says what it basically means is to change the perception of reality, and he says, for the American context, of every American, to such an extent that despite the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interest of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. He's pretty graphic in what he uh, describes. He says, in fact, that it's kind of Pavlovian, that he's that, that it's a it's like a training to become demoralized. He says that people are programmed to think and react to certain stimuli in a certain pattern. You cannot change their mind, even if you expose them to authentic information, even if you prove that white is white and black is black. You still cannot change the basic perception and the logic of behavior. He says it's irreversible. I'm a little bit more optimistic about that. Um, people seem to be able to make contact with and come back from reality, but this is the process of breaking somebody down to enter into such a cult, in particular a totalitarian cult. He says when somebody's demoralized, as I mentioned before, exposure to true information does not matter anymore. A person who is demoralized is unable to assess true information. The facts tell nothing to him. Even if I shower him with information, with authentic proof, with documents, with pictures, even if I take him by force to the Soviet Union and show him a concentration camp, he will refuse to believe it until he receives a kick in his fat bottom. When a military boot crashes his balls, then he will understand, but not before that. That's the tragedy of the situation of demoralization. So the idea under the Soviet project of demoralization is to uh, slowly condition people so that they can no longer tell true and false any longer. We've heard that propaganda, uh, the purpose of true propaganda isn't to mislead. It's to make it so that people can't tell what's real. It's to confuse. It's to humiliate. It's to prevent people from being able to extract truth from available evidence. It's also the to, to make it so that they can't understand the world around them, that they don't know up from down, left from right, or more importantly, good from bad. And also, much more importantly, they don't know real from fake. And in the demoralized state, since the morale has been destroyed, there's, ho there's no hope. It's a hopeless state, and that's also useful. I claim that this is actually, in a very subtle and almost academic sense, 
the discernible purpose of a critical theory. We hear about critical theory. We hear about critical Marxism. The critical theory, uh, you know, critical race theory is an example of one. Uh, critical theories of gender. There's critical theories of everything now. Um, what you read from Herbert Marcuse, writing uh, the leading critical theorist of the 1960s, he writes very, very clearly in 1969 in an essay on liberation, uh, the first chapter of which is titled A Biological Foundation for Socialism, is that in order to get a socialist revolution, a true one in the West, that's going to liberate the West from itself and its capitalism and its consumerism and its one-dimensional circumstance, is to create a fundamental change at the biological level so that people need a socialist system at the level, he says, of their very vital needs. And then he says in a footnote, and I take him seriously, I, take, I don't think he's lying. He doesn't mean necessarily and explicitly eugenics. He says we're not going to, in a footnote, he says we're not going to transform the biological level itself, like the real one. We're going to change the individual down to the level of his very fundamental needs so that he needs to live in a different kind of world, which he will then demand. What you can derive from this is what critical theory is designed to do, which is to induce psychopathology and dependence. Dependence on the state, for example. Dependence on uh, critical theorists and experts to tell you the truth. Do you remember what is a woman? I did a whole episode of New Discourses Bullets on this. When Kentanji Brown Jackson sat on the stand and Marsha Blackburn asked her, what is a woman? And she said, I'm not a biologist. What she was really saying is, I'm not the relevant kind of expert. What she really shouldn't have said was a biologist, and what she should have said is we would have to ask a critical theorist of gender to tell us. But what she's ultimately saying is we have to defer to some kind of an expert to possibly know the answer to basic questions about reality. That's induced dependence. But it's also the inability to perceive reality, and that's psychopathology. When you enter into, what is the definition of psychopathology? It's when you enter into a disordered mental state that's severe enough to interfere with your ability to cope and act in day-to-day -day life. That's the clinical definition of psychopathology. So a critical theory is meant to make you enter a disordered mental state severe enough to interfere with your ability to interact in day-to-day -day life so that you'll become dependent. And you do that through demoralization. So critical theory becomes a tool by which you can subtly demoralize people. Now realize that this started to take over our university system in the 1960s. By the 1990s, we have critical pedagogues, critical theory of education experts, writing in a history that critical education theory had already conquered schools of education by 1992. So all of our education system has largely been bent toward this project for a minimum of 30 years. And so we have a demoralized generation. We call them millennials. And we have now a second generation following them, Gen Z, that's basically deranged through the demoralization and having to deal with what is confronting them in the world. I'm not going to talk much more about demoralization in that regard, though, or these generations. I want to. I was thinking about demoralization today after a, a long phone call with somebody who was describing something to me that's happening in our elementary schools, grades three, four, and five. So we're talking eight, nine, and ten-year-olds primarily here in the United States. And I thought about it, and I, I figured out that there are at least five key aspects to, to demoralization. There might be more, but there are at least five. Number one. I think I'm putting them in the order 
of kind of how they unfold is that you have to get people where they can't tell the difference from right, uh, the difference between right and wrong. You can't tell right from wrong is the kind of moral dimension of demoralization. So you have to morally demoralize people. You have to get them to kind of, you know, enter into this postmodern, is that weird? Is that wrong? Eh, who's to say? Well, you do you kind of state where right and wrong. I understand that these are difficult and gray areas often and that there is a lot of individualism to be expressed. But at the same time, and we don't have to be so rigid and there are reasons not to be too rigid with these kinds of things, but to just to fundamentally not know the difference between right and wrong, or to think that uh, everything can be right for you and wrong for you, and, and it doesn't matter, that there's no kind of um, bigger picture to morality than whatever works for you. This is a fundamental first step in demoralization. And like I said, this is moral demoralization. It is the purposed attempt to make it so that people can't tell right from wrong. But then there's perceptual demoralization as a second facet, which is that you can't tell real from fake. You can't tell when something is artificial versus when it's authentic. You can't tell when somebody is um, pretending versus when they are uh, being genuine. That's a very important thing. You can't tell when the news is the news and you can't or, or versus propaganda. That's a very important part. Perceptual demoralization. This is what Bezdemov was talking about. This is where you can't, you're leading toward the, the point of not being able to tell true information from false information or derive truth from evidence. If you can't tell real from fake, it becomes very easy to start accusing everything that you see of being propaganda and thus not real and thus uh, disinformation or misinformation and kind of the words of the day, right? Critical theory does this quite explicitly by always saying, they're not just asking the kind of classic important critical question, qui bono, who benefits, right? They're not just asking that. They're going much further. They're actually saying, you know, who designed the system and who benefits from the system and why did they design the system in a way such that they benefit so that you come off to think if somebody tells you, oh, such and such happened with Donald Trump, you have to assess who told you that before you can decide whether or not it might be true. There's no way to figure out the information on its own. Uh, you have to figure out if a, if, if a particular point of information has a political valence toward a particular politic or not before you can assess whether or not maybe it's true. In other words, everything gains this political veneer of hyper-reality. It's fake. It's got a political layer of falseness attached to it that has a kind of kernel of truth under it but isn't real. And you start to lose the ability to tell real from fake. And that's a perceptual demoralization. And we heard that from Besnamov. So that leads kind of naturally into a third form, a social demoralization that you can't know who to trust. You don't know who's working against you. You don't know who's going to rat you out. You don't know if your kids are being told by their teachers to go tell on the way that people are behaving with regard to masks or vaccines or whatever at home. You don't know whether you can trust your neighbor. You don't know whether you can trust the people at the store. You don't know who is an informant. You don't know which one of your uh, friends or allies is actually working for an organization. You don't know who's a mole trying to figure out what you're up to. And this circle of trust shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. We end up going from a high trust society to a low trust society. We don't know in a high trust society, uh, you, even if you say are a young woman, could in theory walk down the street at night 
with a high degree of trust that the society is not going to take advantage of you and that the police will come and take care of you. In a low trust society, obviously, you can't do any of that. Uh, you have to act much differently. You don't know if who's going to try to take advantage of you. You don't know if the police, if they were called upon, would take advantage of you as well. You don't know who you can trust. And so social demoralization is a third dimension. And it kind of follows from not from from believing that you can't tell real from fake because there's this layer of propaganda and uh, political valence to everything. And this is explicitly written into the DNA of critical theory. Uh Four, uh, that you can't tell true from false. So finally, we get to the point that Beznoav was making that we would call as intellectual or epistemic, if we wanted to be formal, demoralization. So epistemic demoralization, you can't tell true from false. So you have information and it's in this kind of gray area. You don't know what's true. You don't know what's false. It depends on who said it. It depends on how it feels for you, your truth, my truth, you know, liberal truth, conservative truth, yada, yada, yada. This is where uh, Beznamov is actually talking about that you can show people the concentration camp and they won't believe you. He says until the basically the evidence becomes undeniable. He says when a Soviet uh, boot crashes your balls is when you'll be able to finally see it, but not before that. So that's a complete break from being able to process the world around you. So I go back to that induced psychopo- uh, psychopathology definition of the purpose, I should say, of critical theory that disordered mental state severe enough to interfere with day-to-day life. Uh, If you're just paranoid where you can't trust anybody and can't tell real from fake, that could be something that manifests as a functional uh, paranoid personality disorder. When you can't tell true from false or real from fake, you're now getting into a kind of almost schizophrenic state, not literally schizophrenic like the actual condition, but where it becomes impossible for you to interact with daily life in a meaningful way. And that fosters that induced dependency that I was telling you about. What is a woman? Ask an expert. You don't know how to tell true and false. So what do you do? You have to ask an expert. Can I cross the street here? I don't know. You have to ask somebody. Can I go to the bathroom now? I don't know. You can have to ask somebody. Well, what is a man? I don't know. I have to ask somebody. What color is the light? I don't know. I have to ask somebody. How many lights are there? Are there four lights? I don't know. I have to ask somebody. That's the full state of demoralization, sort of. I think there's a fifth level that's far more important and far deeper, which we might call pure demoralization or even spiritual demoralization. And that's the effort to induce a hopeless outlook. And I think that this is what I, this is what I ultimately was having the conversation about in elementary schools. It wasn't about right and wrong. It wasn't about real and fake. It wasn't about trust. It wasn't about true and false. It wasn't moral, perceptual, social, or epistemic. It was, but we weren't talking in terms of spiritual. It's literally the destruction of morale, the destruction of the ability to believe that there's a better future and hope. And why would you do that? Well, if you're already nourishing dysfunctionality and dependency, because you can then set yourself up as the only hope in a hopeless world, and you can get complete cult adherence and following. And so what we were actually discussing is a curriculum program going on under social emotional learning auspices in various states. It turns out under the brand name Wit and Wisdom in this case, where children, um, like I said, eight to 10 years old are being guided through a series of dystopian novels. I won't get into the details until I can go review those materials for myself. Maybe I'll do another long form podcast on that when I get the information uh, straight. But 
what's happening is children are coming home depressed. They're coming home talking about very dystopian, very dark views. They are children. They're not processing the difference between fantasy and reality the way that adults do. And so I got this call, if you want to know, it was from Tiffany Justice from Moms for Liberty, and she's dealing with moms reporting this all over the country. All over the country, moms telling this same story about the same situation in the same grades with actual curriculum with this kind of dystopian, dark, weird. So she got looking into it and she said, well, why would they be doing this? Is it conditioning? Are they trying to condition the kids to see this kind of world? And that's when I realized I needed to do this podcast because the answer is no. They are inducing a hopeless outlook. They need the children to believe that the world is bleak and scary and hopeless They need to believe that the crisis that they face, whether it's the environmental crisis, whether it's systemic racism, whether it's the gender situation, sustainability and inclusivity, in other words, as they push from, you know, on high at the, the United Nations and World Economic Forum and is woven into everything. Those are the two biggest buzzwords in the world, by the way, sustainable and inclusive. They need to make the children believe that those are existential crises. The world won't be here in 12 years. Greta Thunberg saying, you stole my life. You stole my childhood. How dare you? They have to make them believe that this is an existential hopeless crisis. And then they set themselves up as the one hope, the government, the state, The institution will be your hope. Your parents can't do it. We can't do it unless we all do it together. And the only way we can do it together is through the government, which is the only thing that actually understands. And we need your help. So you have to inculcate this hopeless, dour, dark, depressed, anxious mood or mode. Pure demoralization in the sense of destroying the morale. Spiritual demoralization so that you can fill it with the fake program of the state. And I will point out that these, these, these demoralizers not only understand this, but they understand that people who are bleak, who are depressed, who are anxious, not only does it create a self-fulfilling spiral of more demoralization, not only does it damage families, does it damage communities, does it damage the individuals, it creates people who are desperate for guidance, especially if you can make them believe that all the problems are outside of their locus of control. And the only locus of control that they have is to be able to join the movement that's being pushed by the party apparatus. I was reminded and told Tiffany about this. I was reminded of 10, 15 years ago when I first started looking at how what we used to call third wave radical feminism was taking over college campuses. They were taking these young, vulnerable women, 18 years old, left the house for the first time, college environment. We all know that cults recruit, by the way, when you have a major life shift, right? If you move to a new city, they're after you. If you're, they, they look near airports and bus stations. They advertise near them. They hang out near them. If you go off to college, they're looking for you. And these feminist groups would bring in these young women and talk about, oh, you're in college now, blah, 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 blah. It's a rape culture. There's a rape culture here. Rape everywhere. Rape, 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 rape. You're going to get raped. Blah, 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 blah. Rape, 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 rape culture. And there's no way to stop it except, except our activism. Become one of us. Become a feminist. Become a third wave radical feminist and fight against rape culture. And it's a cult. It's actually a cult indoctrination using demoralization by preying upon somebody's vulnerability. But this is so much worse when we're talking about doing this with eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, younger than that actually too, but feeding them this dour, dark, hopeless kind of 
curriculum. I just recently on the New Discourses podcast went through a uh, UNESCO, and sorry, NEA document, but it's connected to UNESCO. The National Education Association Foundation put out a curriculum guide, K through 12, for educating for the sustainable development goals explicitly to educate, turn education into a project to turn children into activists for the United Nations Agenda 2030 sustainable development goals. Okay. Explicitly. So there's your United Nations gets tied in and it explicitly says the reason is because of the crises that are being identified by the World Economic Forum and the need to have the solutions that come down from the United Nations. And so we have to do this to our children. And what is the kindergarten curriculum that they offer five-year-olds? What is hunger? World hunger. Other people are hungry. Guess what are the major themes in these dystopian novels in grades three, four, and five? Same thing. Hunger, not enough food. Certain people can't get food. Kids are coming home weird about how what they eat and how they eat and how much they eat because they're thinking about fictional characters and what if our life becomes like that? This is demoralization. This is spiritual demoralization. So five key aspects, and there might be more to demoralization, like I said, are moral demoralization, getting people so that they can't tell right from wrong, perceptual demoralization that you can't tell real from fake, social demoralization that you can't tell who you can trust and who you cannot, epistemic demoralization is that you cannot tell true from false, and that's what Yuri Beznamov said it actually boils down to. But then I say this spiritual demoralization is the kind of capstone that makes it go, that hopeless outlook where the only thing that has any hope is the apparatus of the institution or the state that's going to have the solution if we all come together collectively to solve it. What do you do about demoralization? You must moralize. You must look for ways to raise your morale. First of all, you have to you have to unplug from the poison. If it's your children, you have to protect them. You need to nourish your relationships. You need to talk through these things. You need to actually protect them from what's happening in the schools under social-emotional learning. That might mean taking them out of the schools. It might mean homeschooling for a few years. Uh, you have to engage, especially with your children, in determining how to figure out what's true and false, what's right and wrong, how to tell who to trust and who not to trust, who's trying to take you away from your parents, who's trying to separate you from your parents. Don't trust those people. You need to teach them how to determine what's artificial versus what's real, real and fake. You have to you have to do these things for yourself, and you have to gain confidence. So how do you do that? Go outside, touch grass, interact with physics, do real things, remoralize yourself. Stop interacting in digital environments so much and interact in real environments. Try to gather true information. Don't make assumptions and guesses about politics without being very cautious about it. And spend a lot of time dealing with re the real world, doing real world things where true and false are, un are much less ambiguous and build up a sense and a confidence and an ability to discern information. These are key steps. You must remoralize yourself to the degree you're demoralized. Do not black pill. That's spiritual demoralization. Do not give up. You must resist it that way, and you must help your children who are extremely vulnerable resist it. And unfortunately, the school is unlikely to be helping you. It's very likely, in fact, to be working against you. So that's demoralization. You need to know about it, and you need to be ready to combat it. Thank you for listening through an extra long episode.